Hello, I'm Tom Wilkie and welcome to Grafana's Big Tent, the podcast all about the people, community, tools and tech around observability. Today I'm joined by Matt Ryer. Hi Matt, how are you doing? Hello Tom, how are you doing? I'm alright, I mean. Yeah, good, well done. Thank you. First question correct? Easy. Next. Next. <laughs> Where, whereabouts in the world are you today? Uh, foggy London Town. Ah, yes, it is a bit... It's a bit lovely out there today, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's very orange. I think the Sahara dust is blowing over or something. So we have, it's very orange outside. A bit weird, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Are you looking for are you are you coming tomorrow to the uh, to the in-person meetup? Yeah, it's going to be strange being back in person, seeing people, seeing their legs. Like, I'd forgotten about legs. Are you going to remember to wear pants? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've written it down. And trousers? Um, I just wrote that down as well, just in case. That was a joke for our American audience. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed it too. So uh, today we're talking with Marco Petrucci. Oh, I should have checked beforehand. Am I, do I say your second name correctly, Marco? Yeah, it's pretty good. Mm. Okay. So today we're talking with Marco Petrucci and Cyril Tavena. Hey. Um, same question to you, Cyril. Yeah, that was, that was good. How long have we known each other now? Well, three years, apparently. Three years. So I think that's the <laughs> first time I've asked you what your second name is. Um, so Marco and Cyril are both engineers at Grafana Labs. Um, as we just heard, Cyril's been with us for three years um, and has worked predominantly on Loki, our, um, our log aggregation system, but did start life working on, uh, on Cortex. Uh, Marco's been here just over two years, I believe, and has worked predominantly on Cortex and more recently on Mimir, the project we're going to talk about today. Um, Cyril's based in France, Marco's in Italy, so we're a, we're a European podcast today. How's it going, fellas? Good, good. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, same. Yeah, we're... We're really excited to have you on the uh, podcast. Have you have you done many podcasts before? I founded a podcasting company, you know. So <laughs> I did not know that. Well, I, I'm I'm supposed to, to know something about podcasting theory, at least. <laughs> well, I should have known that. Can you uh, can you give me some hints and tips? I am not very good at this. <laughs> no, I, th- I I think you're great. Uh, I especially love your humor. Um, I think it's very important when it comes to audio uh, media. Yeah. You know, the, the voice, the tone of your voice is super important since uh, that's the only way uh, we are going to transmit our emotions. Mm. Yeah. Tom would do good on video as well because he looks funny as well. So. Oh, thank you, Matt. Yeah. He got all bases covered. <laughs> yep. Thank you. Some people say I have a face for radio. <laughs> it's difficult to find something where Tom doesn't shine. Okay. Well, just for, for full disclosure, Marco is in my team, so he has to say nice things about me. <laughs> oh, I see. That makes sense. Yeah, now. yeah. I'm, now I'm now I'm expecting a raise, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so um, today uh, we're going to talk about Grafana Mimir. Who wants to go first? What is Grafana Mimir, Marco? Well, it's a, a new or a next generation uh, time series database for Prometheus and beyond. It's a uh, it's a time series database uh, uh, we have built uh, at Grafana Labs. Uh, which is a uh, highly available, horizontally scalable, supports uh, multi-tenancy and uh, a durable storage, other than uh, blazing fast query performances over long periods of time. Wow, that sounds, uh, that sounds pretty amazing. I think um, you, you mentioned uh, kind of high scalability. What does that mean? Where does that come from? Like, what, is, what is high scalability? Yeah, sure. We are seeing an increasing number of customers needing, you know, massive scale when it comes to uh, collect and query uh, their metrics. And uh, uh, we see, you know, this growing need across the industry to scale to a number of metrics, which just a couple of years ago were unimaginable. To mention the scale at which uh, we have run and we are running Grafana Mimir, we are talking about more than a billion active time series for, for a single tenant, for a single customer. A billion? Whoa. A billion. Wow. <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah. I, don't, I didn't even know how many zeros are in a billion. <laughs> this, is a, this is an American billion, right? So it's nine. Yeah, yeah. It's not a, not a, a British billion, which has 12. A billion. Yeah, a billion. Yeah. Thank you for the... Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah n- nine, nine zeros. Just, just oh, to wow. get that clear, was that an American accent, was that, Matt? Yeah, big time. Oh, okay. It wasn't clear. Sorry. <laughs> And uh, you mentioned that it wasn't just about high scalability. You mentioned blazing fast performance. Cyril, what what is the blazing fast performance bit of Mimir? Yeah, the the blazing fast performance for the the, the query path is um, you know there's more and more customers nowadays that want to query across multiple cluster, for instance. Uh, so this high cardinality uh, of data um, across a single query exists and. 
uh, Mimia has been designed uh, to be able to fulfill this need. So you can query across you know, a lot of series, across a lot of cluster, a lot of namespace. And you're going to be able, for instance, to get information like your TCO across uh, all the cluster or the latency across multiple cluster. The uh, in in the same way, Marco gave a gave a figure for for what we've tested it to. Like, do you have any figures to hand on on what kind of performance you can expect from queries? Yeah, have have actually some uh, comparison between queries, but not specifically the amount of uh, series right now. Okay, no worries. I mean, the number uh, I always quote when people ask me is that the techniques we've used have made certain high cardinality queries up to forty times faster. Mm. Okay. It's it's increasing every time we talk about it. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We started with 10 and then 20, 30, 40. Yeah. It's getting bigger. There was, in the results I saw, I mean, this was months ago, right? But in the results I saw, there was one query that was 40 times faster. Yeah. Yeah, there, there are some edge cases, uh, <laughs> some ed edge queries <laughs> uh, getting so fast. But yeah, what we observe typically is about 10x faster right. with query sharding. Nice. And so what's query sharding then? What's actually going on there? So yeah, query sharding is a, is a technique that uh, actually originated from Newton. Um, and I think, I think you did, uh, did like a, a talk at KubeCon. I think it was named. I don't think I, don't, I don't think I did. I think it was Owen. No, you did a KubeCon talk. It was blazing fast. Um, I, did, I did the talk, but I was, I was just taking credit for Owen's work. Yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah you did yeah. that. Um, <laughs> and... Um, and yeah, so the idea is that uh, we will, you know, parallelize query. Uh, so until now, we were actually parallelizing query just by day or by time. But in the case, as Marco said, where there's like a billion of time series uh, in, in a cluster, then by time is not enough anymore. So you want to be able to split by data, uh, and we call that shard. Uh, and a shard actually uh, is a set of series. So what we're going to do is we're going to actually execute PromQL on a set of selected series. For instance, uh, we're gonna uh, you know, use 16 time or 16 uh, worker. And uh, each of them will only uh, work on one sixteenth of the data. And then we, we're gonna recombine the data back uh, on, the, on the front end and you're gonna be able to uh, speed up the query by 16 or 14 apparently. So I think in that, uh, in that brief intro to Mimir, um, we've, we've used a lot of pretty technical terms uh, and things the audience might not be familiar with. So let's, uh, should, we, should we take a step back now and maybe talk about some of the shoulders we're standing on? So Matt, as the, as the, you know, the non-technical person in the, uh, in the audience, which of these terms do you think we should cover first? Well, thank you for reducing my entire career down to nothing. It's um, all right. Well, yes. So Prometheus then, yeah, I bet there are people that haven't, if there's if there's people out there that haven't used Prometheus, could we could we talk about that? What what is Prometheus doing? So Prometheus is a monitoring system. You you configure Prometheus to discover uh, applications uh, or machines uh, running on your network, uh, and to scrape metrics uh, from DES machines or DES applications. Now, in the, the, the Prometheus architecture is what is typically called uh, a pool model, uh, which means uh, the Prometheus app application, which is a central server, will take care of discovering the applications running on your infrastructure and uh, uh, send requests to this application to scrape the metrics at uh, uh, periodic intervals of time. Um, and then Prometheus allows you to query back this data, this metrics, uh, using... Uh, uh, the PromQL language, uh, which is basically a query language, uh, a functional style query language offered by, by Prometheus. That's cool. So the application, so if I build an application, I, do I only need, ever need to store like the current numbers and the Prometheus will store the history for me? Exactly. Yeah. So that's nice. That, that's much simpler then to implement. And why, I guess, why is Prometheus like taking the world by storm, right? What's special about Prometheus that means it's become you know, one of the most dominant monitoring systems and time series databases out there? Uh, I think the reason why is because it's very simple to use. Uh, also, the model of scraping uh, makes it uh, quite uh, simple to discover new targets. Uh, so it doesn't, you don't need to configure a bunch of targets. It actually will discover. And I think with the rise of Kubernetes, that's how it actually became very popular. Mm. Because Kubernetes has this service discovery, you just install it in your cluster 
and it will automatically like suddenly start scraping all your application and even Kubernetes metrics itself. Um, so the, I think the ease of use is definitely one of the reasons for why it has been so popular. Yeah, 100% agree. I also believe the query language is very powerful compared to other query languages. Uh, think about SQL, PromQL language is way more compact. Uh, you can uh, uh, express uh, a very complex query just in few words. And uh, I think that's a, that's a very powerful property for whoever monitors systems and needs to, you know, to quickly get back uh, an overview on the health uh, uh, of their applications. Is it hard to learn PromQL? Not in my experience. I think it's, uh, it's pretty easy. Uh, there's a comprehensive documentation. Nowadays, there are also uh, a bunch of, you know, unofficial documentation and material uh, like uh, online trainings, uh, blog posts, uh, uh, articles, and so on. Mm. So in my experience, I think it's, uh, it's pretty easy uh, to, to learn and use. Yeah, because it's so popular, there's uh, so much resource on- online outside. You know? And uh, also, if I have to give one uh, resource that I found very useful is the um, PromQL for Mare Mortal that happened in uh, Munich. Uh, mm. I think it was in 2019. That was a very good one uh, when you get started on PromQL. I mean, YouTube is such a resource now for these kind of things. There's so many good good videos on YouTube from all the conferences and, and so on. Yeah. So you also mentioned at the beginning, you mentioned, and, and this is a bit of a weird question to ask, um, you mentioned Cortex. Uh, Marco, what, what's Cortex? Cortex is a, an open source project uh, which actually started at WeWorks uh, and then after some time was donated, well, was open sourced and donated to CNCF. And uh, it's a, you know, a horizontally scalable version of Prometheus. The, the idea of Cortex is not to replace Prometheus, but to extend Prometheus. Mm. Basically, you keep running Prometheus, scraping metrics from your applications, but then you configure Prometheus to remote write, to push this data, this metrics, to Cortex. Uh, and Cortex is your centralized, uh, highly available, horizontally scalable, durable storage for all your metrics. Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to push my metrics out of Prometheus to a, to a central place? Right. There are many, many use cases or multiple use cases. First of all, the typical setup is to have Prometheus running close to the monitored targets. So if you're running in your, your systems in multiple data centers or cloud regions, you typically have multiple Prometheus installations. With Cortex, you can centralize this data. So you keep Prometheus running close to your monitor targets, but then you remote write all those metrics into a central place, a central cluster, which is your Cortex cluster. And uh, uh, Cortex offers you a global view across all the metrics spanning, uh, well, scraped from multiple Prometheus servers, which means in this context, uh, um, spanning across uh, data, multiple data centers or cloud regions, for example. Another, another reason is that Cortex uh, allows you to uh, overcome the vertical scalability limits of Prometheus. Prometheus is a, an excellent application, uh, but obviously it's a single server application. So it's limited by the capabilities uh, of the hardware you run on in terms of uh, disk, CPU, and memory. With Cortex, uh, you can distribute the data and the workload uh, both on the write and read path across multiple machines. Another one is uh, having a, a long-term storage. Now, to store a large amount of metrics, uh, you, you need a very big disk uh, if you run on Prometheus. Cortex allows you to, le- to leverage on uh, object storages like AWS S3 or Google Cloud Storage in order to keep your data for longer periods of time. If, for, if, if with Prometheus you keep the data from a few weeks to a few months, uh, with Cortex, you can uh, keep the data for years. Sounds, sounds pretty cool. You, you know, what you've just described does sound a lot like Mimir, though. Yeah, and that's the reason behind it. <laughs> uh, Mimir has been built or is based uh, on Cortex. Uh, Mimir is, a, is our next generation distributed time series database, which is based on Cortex uh, and upon which uh, we have built uh, extra features uh, for 
additional scalability or even better performances compared to Cortex. Oh, cool. So um, one of the, I've got, I've got a list of, of, of other things you've said. I don't think you actually mentioned Thanos at the beginning, but I feel it'd be remiss in this conversation to, to, to ignore Thanos. What's, uh, what, what's Thanos still? Uh, Thanos is a, um, actually the same ideas as Cortex, but not uh, for the same type of uh, uh, user, in my opinion. Um, I think Thanos is, is also allow you to uh, be able to query across multiple clusters, it, 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 but it works a bit differently than Cortex. Um, at the beginning, I think Cortex was already uh, multi-tenant. Thanos is, wasn't at the beginning, so it doesn't really be designed for building like a SaaS product, for instance. Another difference is also uh, the, the deployment model is way different. Uh, in Cortex, you need to you know, spin up all the, the, the components uh, that are part of the architecture to run Cortex. Uh, in Thanos, you can actually go, you can go incremental, so it's a bit easier. You can only add uh, the cheaper, for instance, and you, you can only add uh, the component at the edge. Uh, so it's uh, the the big difference is Cortex is centralized and uh, Thanos is more working on the edge. So when you want a query, it will actually c connect to all your uh, Prometheus that runs like a Thanos sidecar and will be able to create a store there, and then it will aggregate back the results uh, on the um, receiver Thanos receiver. I think. Um, yeah, Thanos also has that feature where with one click you can delete half of it. That's a joke for the Marvel. Other yeah. comic book universes are available. One snap. <laughs> yeah, one snap. <laughs> well, one click. One click. We'll stick with that. <laughs> uh, but it's also a part of the CNCF. And uh, we're, we're often talking to uh, the Thanos uh, team. We often uh, collaborate with them. Actually, uh, mm. Yeah. It's pretty cool. So how would you decide to, to choose? Whether, like, is it just that you have a different use case why you use Thanos? Or is it other reasons? Yeah, I think uh, it's, it's a difficult question for me because I will always start with a minimal context. <laughs> uh, because, you know, uh, I mean, if I, if I was just comparing it with Cortex, I would probably say, depending on how uh, you know, used to run distributed system, maybe you want to go with Thanos because Thanos will be easier to install. Now with Mimi, I think we've uh, improved that a lot uh, and it's not really the case anymore. So I would say that, you know, Mimi is, runs also as a single binary. The configuration is much, much more simpler. Like all the default have been changed so that you can run like a, a cluster that will uh, already support a very high load. You don't need to tweak like uh, you will need in, in Cortex to make it, uh, to make it performant. So, uh, you know, it's a, for me, it's a difficult question. I would say Mimi right now. And, and if you have to choose with Cortex, it depends on your experience. Mm -hmm. Marco, you gave, a, you gave a PromCon talk a couple of years ago with Bartek, the lead maintainer from Thanos, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Can you represent Thanos in, uh, in Cyril's completely unbiased uh, <laughs> recommendation there? Yeah. So what Cyril previously described uh, is uh, the edge deployment mode of Thanos. But in recent times, uh, Thanos also allows to run or to deploy very similarly to Cortex. So fully centralized uh, with the ability to accept remote writes uh, from Prometheus. Uh. So nowadays, the two projects, Thanos uh, and Cortex, uh, are very, very similar. So the Cortex block storage, which we built a couple of years ago, uh, we went uh, into the Thanos direction in terms of how the data is stored in the object storage. And when Thanos introduced the receiver, which is like the Cortex ingester, uh, Thanos went into the Cortex direction in terms of uh, how the data is received from Prometheus. So nowadays, the two projects are very, very similar, and it's quite difficult you know, to find uh, big differentiators. I think it's a different story if we try to compare with Mimir, for example, for, for the reason why we have built Mimir to overcome some scalability and performance limitations we have experienced uh, while running uh, Cortex at scale. You mentioned scalability limits in Cortex and Thanos. I mean, where do these limitations come from? Sure. We have found different limitations. First of all, uh, to understand these limitations, we need to understand how the data is stored. Uh, both Cortex uh, and Thanos and also Mimir uh, use uh, Prometheus TSDB to store the metrics data in the long-term storage. 
So basically, Prometheus just to be partitioned data by time. And therefore, for a given period of time, the data is stored into a data structure, which is called the block. And again, inside the block, we have an index uh, used to query this data and uh, uh, the actual time series data, so the actual samples, uh, which are compressed chunks of data. Now, they, they, we have found some limitations. Uh, well, there are well-known limitations in, in, the, in the TSDB index, like uh, the index uh, can't grow uh, above 64 gigabytes, uh, or even inside the index, there are multiple sections, and each section or some of the sections can't be bigger than 4 gigabytes. Basically, this looks, you know, very technical details, but at the end, it means that you have a limit on how many metrics you can store for a given tenant, which tra typically translate for, for a given customer. With Mimir, we have introduced a new compactor, which we call the split and merge compaction algorithm, uh, which basically allow us to overcome uh, these limitations. Instead of having one single block for a given time period for a customer or a tenant, as we call it in Mimir, we split the data, we shard the data into multiple blocks. And uh, we can share the data in as many blocks as we want, uh, uh, overcoming the single block uh, limitation or the single block index uh, limitation. Now, another issue we have found, uh, which again, it's well known, is that ingesting data, even very large amount of data, is uh, it's not that complicated. But when it comes to querying back this data fast, things get, uh, you know, more, more tricky. And uh, uh, one major scalability limit we had was that uh, uh, the PromQL engine is single thread. So if you run a single query, uh, a complex query, like a query uh, hitting a large amount of metrics, it doesn't matter how big is your machine. It doesn't matter how many CPUs you have. The engine will just use one single CPU core. All right. We actually wanted, you know, to take the full advantage of all the computation power we have or our customers have. And what we've built is query sharding, which allows us to run a single query across multiple machines or across multiple CPU cores. Very cool. And I guess with the new sharded split and merge compactor, like what are the limits now? Like how many, how large a cluster could I build or, or, or tenant could I have? So let me be very, very honest. Uh, there's no system which scales infinitely, right? Mm -hmm. There are always limitations in every system. We tested and we, we are still running Grafana Mimir with up to 1 billion active time series for, for a single tenant. I'm still mentioning uh, a single tenant, which is key in this context, uh, because uh, if you have uh, a billion time series, but across a thousand different tenants, uh, well, each tenant then is pretty small, right? It's just a million series per tenant. I'm mentioning a billion time series for a single tenant um, because that's the, the single unit uh, which is harder to split and to shard mm. uh, in the context of Cortex, uh, Thanos, uh, or, or even Mimir. So we've tested up to a billion, and we don't think it's infinite, but it's somewhere between a billion and infinite. <laughs> it's uh, quite a big gap. And we tested it with K6 too. So we created an extension in K6 for sending Prometheus remote write data. And so that means anyone, like all of this is open source, so anyone can take Mimia and, and try it at home and see you know, how it scale. Uh, you, you just need a lot of CPU to reach uh, the power of sending a billion of series. And memory. Yeah, and memory. <laughs> I don't think we've ever mentioned K6 on this uh, podcast. We haven't mentioned it yet. Mm. So you're the first one. What's K6? K6 is, uh, is our load testing tool that we have now at Grafana. I think we acquired them last year or this year. So there's like two products. There's one product, which is the K6 CLI, where, where you can define a plan. It's often written in JavaScript, but we created an extension for Cortex or Prometheus in Go. Um, and it allows you to you know, define a plan and it will, uh, with the CLI, we automatically uh, load test your application by running your test plan. Uh, so it could be a plan that you know, sends uh, metrics, but it could be also uh, load testing your shop website or whatever. It, you know, it's up to you to design the plan. The other product is the K6 Cloud, which takes the same plan. You actually don't need to modify anything, but it runs in the cloud. And then now you can actually scale your load test to reach higher loads, actually, you know, a billion Active serial load, apparently. <laughs> awesome. Well, that sounds really interesting. I haven't had a chance to play with K6 myself. 
K6 use Testify, by the way, the popular Go package for testing. Oh, and why do you mention that here, Matt? Oh, just because Prometheus also use it. And Cortex does as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I created it. Oh, and you, oh there we oh. go. Now we get to the point. Essentially, without me, no one writing Go code can be sure their code works. <laughs> no, just kidding. You reduced every if statement from three lines to one. I've saved so many lines. Think of how much disk space. Exactly. But you know what I mean? All those characters, all those curly braces that you've set free. <laughs> I, I should be able to store my data on everyone's machines really as sort of a thank you i ought to be able to do i think but uh, no there's a great team also that worked on testify and still maintain it so yeah just kidding but i actually prefer a certify uh, i've not heard of that one is it good no it's similar mm, it doesn't sound as popular <laughs> <laughs> isn't there an assert package in testify yeah 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 i, I prefer assert over require oh do you you like yeah. more you like to see lots of failures instead of stopping at just one i like things to fail and then continue mm. yeah yeah it's pretty brave yeah i just I'm, I'm actually asking because why is that even in there well the require one is the more popular case where people but why is a cert even in there Matt? oh uh okay well that was the first one that was all actually it copies the way the standard library works the standard library by default doesn't stop you have to fail it or i think so I think that's why it just in sort of inherited that behavior. I have another one that I use, which is github.com slash Raya slash is. And that is like testify off steroids. Um, and that's genuinely like, because testify is massive. The API, like all the things it does, mm. it, it's, you know, it's a hefty project. And is is the opposite. It has no dependencies. It's very basic and much simpler. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. Actually, you know, I think... Probably do a do an episode in a, in a maybe in a Go based podcast about this. That'd be a good idea. Do you know of any good Go based podcasts? There's JS Party, but I think that's for JavaScript. <laughs> <laughs> now, for the, for the listeners that aren't aware, Matt also hosts a popular Go based podcast called Go Time. <laughs> it's still available. Available where you get your podcasts. <laughs> So that's interesting with learning about Cortex and how this is solving that scalability problem. As from a sort of open source point of view, why didn't the Cortex thing just go into Prometheus? So I personally think it's because um, the Prometheus project or the Prometheus team didn't really wanted Cortex or wasn't wasn't really sure if Cortex was the right architecture. Like you know, as we talked earlier, there's like two apparently two direction where. Uh, we have Thanos and Cortex, and so I think the Prometheus team wasn't sold on any of those two ideas. So they were left just to uh, look at, you know, which one would be the best. But as of today, they still don't, you know, no one is uh, really fully sure of which one is the best uh, solution. Although we think that, you know, Cortex and Mimia is, is the one fitted for all need, definitively. Mm. Yeah, there's something useful about having that Prometheus as a core project unchanged. You know, as we talked about Testify earlier, one of the things that happened to that project is... Whenever anybody contributed something, we had this rule where they'd be made a maintainer. Yeah. And what happened, the effect was that the API just grew and grew and grew. Now, it has loads of things that people use, and some people like love certain areas of it and not others. But if you're learning to write tests with Testify in Go, it's quite a steep learning curve now. It's quite overwhelming to look at the API and, and see all those different things. So there is something to be said for keeping a sort of kernel of somewhat stable and unchanged and allow other external projects to do their thing independently. Yeah. Yeah. The Prometheus maintainers, you know, I'm on the Prometheus team myself. Like we're quite conservative, mm. like about what goes into Prometheus. You know, it's Prometheus as a monitoring system is supposed to be the last thing that's running, right? And it needs to be the most reliable. It needs to have the fewest dependencies. It needs to be standalone, right? And so, yeah, you know, the team take that responsibility really seriously. And distributed systems like Cortex and Thanos aren't necessarily, you know, outside of the scope of what Prometheus and, and the Prometheus team are trying to achieve. And what I like is that whilst they're outside the scope, they don't actively discourage their development. You know, a lot of the Prometheus team maintain Thanos or maintain Cortex, you know, and work on these systems. And a lot of the Prometheus code itself, the storage engine, as Marco referenced earlier, or the query engine, are reused and are reusable by Thanos, by Cortex, by other projects. Um, and so, you know, if anything, I think Prometheus has kind of seeded the development of these other projects whilst keeping them, you know, keeping them separate to, to keep Prometheus simple. Mm. 
I think it goes both ways, right? Like uh, we also contribute back mm. to Prometheus. Uh, so in a way, it's a good thing for Prometheus to help those two projects alive because uh, you know, it helps us find bugs or upstream improvements because we push the Prometheus engine, for instance, further than Prometheus itself will do it uh, and allows us to you know, improve it every day. Yeah, I've noticed that. I mean, I haven't been at Grafana long, but I've noticed that conversations will happen about like there's a new thing that we want to build maybe it goes into Prometheus like, and there's, and that's totally like an acceptable thing to do. So I think, yeah, it's that rising tides lifts all ships thing, um, approach, which I, I do appreciate. And I'm sure everyone does. Yeah. From a Cortex and uh, Mimir development uh, standpoint, I think uh, it's also good for the ecosystem having a place where we can, you know, experiment with new ideas, with cutting edge features, mm. which we can eventually upstream to Prometheus. Some of the improvements, both in the, in the query language or in the storage, we proposed over the past few years, were actually originated from experiments we started in Cortex. And then we upstreamed to Prometheus so that the, a wider community can, le- can leverage on that. Mm. I think this is healthy for the ecosystem. Yeah. But in a similar vein to the question Matt asked about why Cortex or Thanos isn't part of Prometheus, why did we choose to build Mimir as a separate project? And why didn't we just contribute these improvements back to Cortex? Yeah, I think there's, there's like two axes for, the, for this answer. First one is uh, the metric space is very competitive. And so I think we wanted to build a new project where uh, we will be able to, not specifically everyone was uh, contributing to Cortex and we were the biggest uh, maintainer and contributor. And uh, having our own project gives us more agility, but also you know, it helps us to make sure that other competitors are not you know, taking advantage of our work for free. Mm-hmm. The other access is we had a lot of also also other you know features that we had at closed source and we wanted to make them open source, like you know, allow other people to be able to use and experiment with those features. And it wasn't really possible without building a new project with a different license. Mm. Uh, otherwise, it would just be giving away our work you know, to uh, our competitor. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that was a very difficult decision. And it's all about a trade-off. It's about uh, you know, finding a model which allows us to succeed commercially, uh, while at the same time keeping uh, most of our code open. Mm. And uh, yeah, launching uh, you know a, a new project, which is a, a first-party project, a new project at Grafana Labs, Grafana Mimir. We think that fits you know quite well in, in this trade-off, uh, in this decision. Yeah, it's really tough. I have a I won't mention them, but I have another project, an open-source project, and finding the time to properly dedicate to it is very difficult, especially when you have like a full-time job. So yeah, and and actually, like GitHub sponsors was is we're enabled to GitHub sponsors on the, one of the projects, and you know people are very generous there. But that's like you know I, it's a very difficult way to fund a project to go and mm. try and get sponsorship. Like it does get very difficult. And then that other point that you make about like yeah, bigger companies can sort of just take that work and you know do their thing with it. You know, I feel like it's still a problem we haven't yet solved in the open source world. Mm. There's still some conversations to be had about how to do that properly. Yeah, I mean, about a year ago, right, we changed the license on Grafana and Loki and Tempo to be AGPL, Mm. right? Because we think it struck that better balance, right? It's still open source, um, but it allows, uh, you know, it prevents like other companies from taking our code and modifying it. And so, you, you, Cyril, you mentioned a different license for Mimir. Mimir is AGPL as well, I can assume? Yeah, correct. And I think that's a, that that helps us, you know, for the contribution between all our projects, right? Because uh, the two licenses are not like Apache and, and LGPL are, are not uh, compatible, or they are only compatible one way. And so having all the projects at Grafana, you know, Grafana itself, Loki and Tempo being on the same license will allow us, you know, to uh, move improvement from one project to another, or share improvement, or share code. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's also one of the reasons why we did this. Mm, mm. So what does AGPL mean then? Say I'm a startup and I want to use this tech. What do I have to consider? Can I just use it? Like it's still an open source project, right? Yeah, I believe you can still use it. Like the trick with AGPL is if you make any changes to the project, I mean the same with GPL, right? If you make changes to the project and distribute the binary, Mm. then you have to distribute your changes. With AGPL, if you make changes to the project and allow people access to that service over the internet, 
you have to distribute those changes. Right, so you have to contribute the changes back to the original project. Mm -hmm. Oh, you don't have to contribute them back. Mm. You just have to make them available under the same license. Right. Yeah, it's an interesting, like, there's a lot of nuances to licensing. Yeah, we probably don't have enough time here to go into all of them. Could be its own episode, frankly. Probably should be, right? <laughs> but the, you know, the nice thing about, you know, AGPL kind of closes the, the cloud loophole, mm. is how they talk about it. Yeah, it makes sense. And I guess the, the final question, like, a lot of the features we've talked about adding to Mimir, uh, a lot of the code we've built, I guess uh, it's worth saying that it, we had done all of this before for our enterprise products and for our cloud products. Like, a lot of these ideas were being built in closed source, and as a company at Grafana Labs, like we really want these kind of things to be open source. And we're always trying to find ways to release them as open source. So partly, you know, one of the reasons we've done Mimir is a way of getting the cool technology that we've built out there and in front of more people. Yeah, I think it's great you mentioned because when we launched uh, Mimir, a recurring question uh, we got was, as a Cortex user or as a community user, can I jump uh, on Mimir? Can I uh, upgrade immediately? How stable is it, right? And the cool thing is that uh, the features we have released in, uh, in Mimir are running in production since months mm. at Grafana Labs at any scale, right? From small clusters to, to very big clusters, including the 1 billion series cluster we mentioned before. And that's why we have, you know, quite good confidence on the stability of the system uh, because it's already running since a long time. Mm. Yeah. One of the things that really impressed me when I joined Grafana was this dedication to dog fooding things yeah. so that you're not just building these, imagining these use cases. They are our use cases too. You, you know, when you scratch your own itch and solve your own problems like this and also live with the consequences of the tech... Anytime I've seen that, it makes the tech better. It makes the projects mm. more usable. You know, they solve the real problems. So I think that's a great, and I always encourage other companies to do that. And I also like it when like there's an internal project where someone solves a, a problem and then that becomes eventually a, a something that can be open sourced. I think that route to getting things out there is a great one because like you say, Marco, it's tested, it's, it works. We've been using it. You know, you can sort of rely on it, which is pretty good. It's battle tested. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that struck me as odd about the Mimir release was that the initial version that we released, we called version 2.0. Why did we call the first version 2.0? Well, first of all, it's not uh, 1.0 or 0.1 because we want to show the continuity from Cortex. There's a clear and smooth uh, upgrade path uh, from Cortex to Mimir. We also want to show and to, to state it clearly uh, that it's based on Cortex uh, and on the lessons learned uh, while running Cortex uh, at scale. Second, why not uh, Mimir uh, 113, like the next minor version of Cortex? And the answer is that uh, in Mimir, other than introducing features like uh, the new compaction algorithm or query sharding or other scalability and performance improvements, we have also took the opportunity to simplify the configuration, to remove uh, a bunch of technical debt we accumulated over the years in Cortex. And so because of this, we actually introduced some breaking changes in the configuration. Now, now the, configure, the Mimir configuration is uh, way smaller and way easier to understand compared to Cortex. But at the same time, we had to pay the price of introducing some changes in the configuration. And so this required a major version release. Thank you. Yeah, what was the kind of stuff we got rid of then? What did we remove? Well, one for all, the chunk storage support. So for the listeners, Cortex uh, originally was built with uh, a storage engine, which over the time we called uh, chunk storage. And then about uh, two years ago, we actually released uh, a new uh, storage engine for Cortex, uh, which we called the Blocks Storage. Uh, it's called Block because it's based on Prometheus TSDB blocks uh, as a data format to store metrics. Now, Blocks became the recommended way mm -hmm. uh, to run Cortex. Uh, Blocks is the only supported storage in Mimir, and Mimir uh, completely removes uh, the chunk storage support. I can, uh, I can feel happiness when you're saying that. <laughs> <laughs> you looked quite excited removing a lot of code there. Yeah, as an engineer, it's, it's very satisfying seeing a very high number of codes removed. Yeah, they're my favorite PRs, especially when it's Tom's code that's being removed. 
<laughs> oh, that's, uh, it's a bit harsh, isn't it? Yes, I wrote the chunk storage. Burn. Oh, we still have it in Loki, Tom, don't worry. <laughs> it's still there. It's, it lives on. It lives on. <laughs> it's just shrinking. <laughs> you mentioned, I think you mentioned that you've also changed a bunch of the config variables and simplified the config. What, you know, what, what kind of simplifications have you made? Yeah. First of all, we changed the defaults in the configuration. This may look like a, a tiny detail, but we actually revised the entire configuration, the default configuration, to make sure that Mimir can run in production with the default configuration out of the box uh, without, you know, needing to uh, fine tune the configuration, spending hours to learn uh, how to tune it for a production system. So the result of this work is that to run Mimir in production, what you need is basically just configure the object storage for your data, like S3 or Google Cloud Storage. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's something that we uh, we start to hear a lot at Graphenai, and I think it's a it's a vibe that goes on on all projects where we try to make our project much more approachable, especially in terms of configuration. Uh, so we make sure that the defaults are good for production setup. Silly question. Why were the defaults not correct to begin with? I guess just bad hygiene. <laughs> That's, you know, uh, I think also it's because uh, maybe they were introduced at different time. The, you know, over time, it's easy that you have like the default that drift and they are not in line with uh, what will be the best right now. So, you know, the, the, maybe the code change, but the default has a change because you were afraid of doing a breaking change. So there's a, yeah. Yeah, I guess when we, when we write the code, we don't necessarily know what the right value is half the time. Yeah. You know, we, and we mentioned earlier, like, you know, Mimir is battle tested. You know, part of changing the defaults is us rolling that, the variables and config that we found work best in production back into the code. Right. I think this is coupled with the life cycle of a new feature. Uh, we introduce a new feature, experimental. We keep it disabled by default for obvious reason. We learn the hard way running it in our staging and then production environments. Uh, and then after some time, uh, we gain the confidence to mark it stable, right? Now, in the past, we haven't always changed the default configuration with the new recommendations over the time once, once new features uh, became stable. Another cool thing we have done in Mimir has been uh, introducing a feature lifecycle policy. So uh, now we have a written down policy uh, on how new features are introduced uh, and uh, experimental features. Well, we, we commit to move from experimental features to stable features within six months of time. I expect this will give, uh, uh, you know, more stability to the project, uh, even more stability to the project uh, and uh, uh, will allow us to keep uh, our default configuration up to date with the best practices. That's pretty cool. So we won't have like flag proliferation and wrong variables, uh, wrong default variables in the future. We've, we've got a, a way of solving that now. Good. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah, that's a problem I see at a lot of different places. I remember working on something where we added the ability to enable or disable something. Now, the ideal design would be enabled true or false. That would be great. But because there were already existing configs, we couldn't do that. So you end up being like not enabled yeah. <laughs> or disabled true or, you know, and, and so you end up with these strange things. But yeah, that, that sort of it, it is an important thing. And I'm really pleased it's in the fore of the minds of the engineers here because sensible defaults make such a big difference, especially when, you know, like me, I'm not sure like what I should configure it to. I kind of want it to just work initially. And then later when I have a bit more of an understanding or I see where it's not working for me or, you know, then maybe I tweak it. I think it's real V2 problems, right? Yeah. Yeah. To think about sensible defaults and config, but it is important, you know, Cortex and now Mimir, you know, and the code it's based on is five years old. You know, it's a maturing project with real use cases and getting this stuff right is a real quality of life thing. Yeah, I, I always point to Go's backwards compatibility promise to 1.0. That is such an important thing. And, and Go 118 was recently released, well, a while ago now. And that has generics in it. That's a sort of massive addition to the language. And yet all the Go code from version one is still compatible. So Yeah. And there's still three ways of defining a new variable. There are, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> I have a talk, Things in Go I Never Use on that exact subject. Search for it in your favorite search engine. Do you use a cert? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Where can people go then if they want to find out more about Mimir? 
Just just search, Google it or duck, duck, go yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> the reason we chose Mamir is because it's an easy to Google word, right? Yeah. Where did the name come from? How did that happen? Oh, well, that's a good question. The So we've got this, um, the LGTM strategy, like logs, graphs, traces, and metrics. Mm. And, and Loki, the logging system begins with L. And Grafana, the graphing system with G. And Tempo, the tracing system with T. And Cortex, the metric system, begins with a C. Um, so it had to begin with an M. Um, and then, you know, we kind of went back to our Scandinavian roots. We were looking for a word that began with M that kind of, you know, came from, you know, Norse or, or Greek mythology or something like that, you know. And that's where we came up with Mimir. I was actually personally lobbying for Mjolnir, uh, Thor's hammer. Oh, that's cool. Difficult to spell, though. But no one can spell it yeah. or say it. So we went with Mimir instead. <laughs> what is Mimir? It's uh, the name of a new open source time series database from Grafana Labs. Great. And is it going to be also, is it going to end up being a Marvel baddie as well? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> now, what is Mimir? I think it's a, it's a Greek maybe or, or Norse kind of, oh, I have no idea. This is what Wikipedia is for. <laughs> okay. <laughs> duck, duck, go it yourself, listener, and find out. Yeah, I, I love Mimir because, you know, it's one of those words that even an Italian like me can spell. Uh, <laughs> So it's Norse, good, got that bit right. Nice. It was a, a figure in Norse mythology renowned or for his knowledge and wisdom who was beheaded during a war mm. and got the Odin, Odin god carries around Mimir's head and it recites secret knowledge and counsel to him. Oh, wow. So that's like an iPhone in a way. Yeah, yeah in a way. Yeah. A headless iPhone. Yeah, yeah. When you cut your head off an iPhone and carry that around. You know, I think that might be the first time I've read that. Yeah. Well, no, but the knowledge thing makes sense, doesn't it? It has all your knowledge in there. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that one. Well, we'll take it. So what's next for Mimir? Like, what are the, what's the future plans? Can we talk and give people a bit of a sneak peek? Can we reveal some exciting spoilers? Yeah, we have big plans. So first of all, I think uh, we want to keep committing to our big tent philosophy. And uh, we want Mimir uh, to be, you know, a general purpose time series database. Mm. Right now, Mimir is focused on Prometheus metrics, but we want to support uh, open telemetry uh, or graphite or Datadog metrics in Mimir. That's something we are already working on and uh, will be soon available in Mimir. We're also planning, so I, I love query performance. So that's why I'm going to talk about two query performance uh, improvement that we want to do in the future. So in Loki, currently, we are looking into um, splitting instant range queries. So, you know, if you have like a range vector with a, a very large duration, so for instance, like count over time, mm. like 30 days, that can be very slow uh, because as we were saying, it will actually be only split uh, into just 16 or, you know, the amount of shard, but we don't divide that into time because it's just a single instant query. Mm. So we want to be able to split instant query. We do that in Loki right now because Loki has like, you know, the amount of data for 30 days can be tremendous compared to uh, the amount of sample you can have in metrics. So because we're doing that in Loki, then we're going to port it back into Mimir definitively. Uh, again, because of the license are the same, it's going to be super easy to do that. Mm. Um, and then we, when we work on uh, uh, sharding, uh, query sharding with Marco, we, we discover like you know a couple of problems and improvement that we wanted to do. But it, it touches on you know TSDB itself, on PromQL or Prometheus itself. So we didn't do it you know straight away, but we want to make TSDB shard aware. So being able to actually request directly the index a specific shard or filter out you know the, the data for, for, for a given shard uh, that's clever from the beginning yeah obviously I think the best way to get that into Mimir will be to upstream that into Prometheus so this is something that we can definitely try to do mm. that's a good example of something that where that makes sense to push that back yeah yeah if you want to do query sharding you know from Prometheus right now it's, it's not very easy mm -hmm. the Mimir query sharding is open source so you can check it out uh but like we have to actually hack around the PromQL engine because the engine has no knowledge of what sharding is. Mm. So making it more uh, aware of sharding is definitely something. And I think the Prometheus team has, has actually requested or maybe started some thought about doing that because I think Thanos is also interested in into having query sharding uh, implemented. Yeah, another area where you may expect some big improvements in the near future is around the Mimir 
operability. Now, we already mentioned that uh, we simplified a lot the configuration. Uh, it's very easy to get uh, Mimir up and running. But like any distributed system, there's still some effort required uh, to maintain the system over the time. Think about uh, version upgrades or think about the scaling or fine-tuning the limits uh, for different tenants uh, and stuff like this. So one of my you know, big dreams around the project is to have the Mimir autopilot and uh, you know, trying to reach uh, as close as possible to zero operations mm-hmm. in order to, to run and maintain a Mimir cluster at scale. Yes, please. <laughs> this is something, you know, which is very easy to say, uh, very difficult to do. But we've got some ideas. There are some ongoing conversations at Grafana Labs uh, on uh, how we could you know, significantly improve the operations of Mimir at scale. And uh, I expect we will do you know, something significant over the next uh, six, nine months. Yeah, that's, uh, that's super interesting. We, the, in the Loki project, we currently have like a, the Red Hat team who actually became a member of the Loki project. And they are working on an operator for Loki. Uh, and I think they have the same goal as you just described, Marco, where they want to make it super simple to operate Loki at scale, especially upgrade the cluster or maintain the cluster. Uh, so that makes that makes a lot of sense. I think uh, maybe that's something that could be also uh, reused for Mimir. Mm. You know, they share the same components. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think one of the very cool things about working at Refine Labs is that there's a lot of cross-team work. Just to mention one, Cyril built uh, the query sharding into Loki before we built it into Mimir. Mm-hmm. And then he came to, to me and to other people in the Mimir team with this, you know, baggage of knowledge mm-hmm. uh, around how to successfully build query sharding. And then we built it into, into Mimir as well. Mm. And obviously, uh, we learn, we all learn from each other. And uh, the autopilot will be another great opportunity to learn from, yeah. from other teams. We actually built it in a better way than Loki. So now I'm a bit, uh, I'm a bit jealous. I'm going to go back. <laughs> well, you have to go and backport it back to Loki. Well, that's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> and then when you figure out how to build it better in Loki than in Mimir, you've got to come back and bring, bring your improvements back to Mimir. Well, we're going to do it in Prometheus. Yeah, exactly. So I think, unfortunately, I think that's all we've got time for today. Oh. Um, so I wanted to say thank you to Matt Ryer. You're welcome. Thank you, Matt. It wasn't clear that this was optional, but I'm glad I came. <laughs> <laughs> thank you to Marco and Cyril. Thank you. Thank you to you. And uh, my name's Tom Wilkie. Thank you for listening to Grafana's Big Ten. Uh, hopefully see you next time. You know, Matt actually recorded that himself. Is it live? It looks like it was live. Well, that wasn't live. It could be. If we do like a live podcast in Whistler, then it would be pretty cool to actually somehow figure out how to get people to play that live, wouldn't it? Yeah.